All right. Uh, my name is Aaron Rhodes, and you're listening to the Shuttlecock Podcast. We're sponsored by Vinyl Underground at 7th Heaven, offering new and used vinyl at 76 Intrust in Kansas City, Missouri. This week on the show, we have Ron Knox. How you doing? I'm good, man. How you doing? Couldn't couldn't be better. Well, actually, that's <laughs> a lie, but that's, a lie. Um, that's what you say when you're hosting a podcast or something like that. Yeah. Um, how, how have you been, Ron? I'm okay, man. I'm all right. I'm busy. I'm cold. I've been like been cooped up for too long in this house with the snow and this cold, but um, I feel good. I feel good. Yeah, no, I, we, we, my apartment just like kind of half got hot water back today after two, three days. And uh, wow. I've never wow. been more thankful to take a hot shower. I must no. say. No <laughs> doubt. Taking a cold shower in this weather is like the cruelest joke. I want to do it. But yeah, um, I guess we can, I wanted to start where I usually start with people. I guess I just want to know what like your first like favorite music was and like what kind of music you were hearing growing up. Wow. Okay. Um, what kind of music I was hearing when I was growing up is different than what my first favorite music was. Yeah, but, I guess we can do this. You know, when I was growing up, man, like I grew up with my mom and it was just like, it was like what you would think of now as like, you know, classic, classic rock, like 70s, like 60s, 70s. She was really into bands like, uh, she was really into the Stones. I like inherited all of like her Stones LPs, nice. which are incredible. And I'm really hyped on that. But um and like three dog night and like and like journey you know like journey like all that all that kind of like right in that kind of wheelhouse mm. and then before then like all the all the big kind of rock stars from that era she's in like aerosmith and like even like dylan and that kind of stuff but the first music that i was ever that i well the first the first album that i ever bought with my own money was nwa straight out of compton and i bought it on a cassette tape from a mall from the whatever whatever music store i don't even remember what it was whatever store was in oak park or no in um medcalf south nice that's what it was yeah i like i used to get dropped off in medcalf south and um and i bought nwa's trade out of compton Uh, so i was like it's like just it's like a classic story right it's like white kid that kind of grew up like in the suburbs just listens to hip-hop kind of a lot and that was like that was my first true like musical love and then and then it was punk and i got into punk for like all kinds of reasons that just like you know friends shifting musical tastes and whatever scene i ended up kind of falling into um but the first punk record i ever bought from a from a very similar store if not the same one um was uh was dead kennedy's plastic surgery disasters on tape yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, what an intro, right? Like most kids go a different way and I like got into the good stuff pretty quick. So Yeah, no, uh I better it's better than start oh I'm I'm not gonna talk any trash on Sum forty one, but that's where I started. And uh, they're they're arguably better records to start with, but uh That's a good and, no, that's a, that's a great intro to yeah, to no. that world. You just need someone to open the door and then you can figure yeah. it out. But yeah. Um, and no, it's funny. I guess you, I guess you surprised me a little bit with the the NWA tape because I don't think I've ever talked hip hop with you really, at, at any length at least. Um, yeah, that's and, true. Yeah. Uh, but I, I guess I could have assumed that much just as um, I think that's the 
the way that a lot of uh, white Jewish American kids go is just like <laughs> getting into rap at a young age for whatever reason. Wait, maybe maybe I'm like fully wrong. I haven't done any reading on this at all, but like my, like off the top of my head, my theory is of why like Jewish kids are so attracted to hip hop or like get into it so easily is that like not growing up under like strict Christian like anti obscenity rule most of the time, you know, like kind of makes it easier to be interested in like other cultures did i don't know does that make sense to you that's it does. my I mean, theory i mean it does i don't know i don't know that that was it does make sense totally um i don't think that was it with me right i think it was just like you know uh you hit a moment in your life i think everybody does when like you know you you feel like you want to kind of you know break away from the life you've been living as like yeah. a young person and you want to like do a different thing and you want to kind of cultivate your own like image and your own taste and all of that. Yeah. And I mean, look, and that was, I mean, you know, when that record and records like that were out, I mean, like, you know, like, you know, cop killer, like all that kind of stuff. It was right at this moment when there was like this crazy political blowback yeah. from these, you know, like against these records and their content and what they were saying and of course it was like super racist right i mean it was yeah. like how dare these like young rich black men like talk about cops this way and and do this kind of thing and you know when you're searching for uh, like identity as a young person and there's this clear like where like it's clearly like the establishment saying this thing is bad you go aha you're like, that's the thing I want to, I want to get into. Yeah, that's yeah. what I need to hear. If they're like all these crusty old white folks in Congress, like having a breakdown over this record, you got to give me that record. Yeah. And then I'm going to feel amazing. And I did feel amazing. Oh my God. I mean, it was like, it like totally opened up this whole kind of musical attitude wise, like whole Avenue for me. And that was my, I said like, you know, something has to open the door. I think to people who get into punk later, that record, yeah. that NWA record was, was like opened the door for me. So then I could immediately, when I heard punk, I was like, I get this. They're angry, angry too. And they're talking about cops too. It's the, yeah. literally the same thing, you know? How, how far between the, the NWA record and the Dead Kennedys record was that? I don't know. A few oh, years. Yeah, a few years. A few, uh, year, a few years. I, I like got, I like, I really got into Ice Cube really got into ice cube in particular i like i i still to this day have those three first ice cube records memorized word for word every song amazing yeah <laughs> uh, yeah i guess i guess i'm curious where where each like your your punk taste and your hip-hop taste go from there like what like kind of following uh artists you get into in each of those genres that were like important to you yeah i mean like i said like those like those kind of early political like hip-hop records and like both coasts west coast east coast i yeah. mean so like you know public enemy was super important nwa was super important um you know ice cube tupac like 
and then like i mean it's not not anything crazy not anything so i wasn't like super underground about it i was just into the big stuff but the big stuff was incredible like mm-hmm. you know like the like you know illmatic was an incredible album yeah. 36 chambers was an incredible album you know tribe called quest was like you know like wonderful still is wonderful yeah like in that kind of thing. So this wasn't like, this wasn't like, you know, anyway, I, I didn't get into it in a scene way like I did with punk. And then mm-hmm. punk was like, where I was like, cause punk is a scene place. Yeah. It's not like uh, it's not like pop music. Whereas like that was kind of the dawn of hip hop, like becoming pop music. Like it yeah, really yeah. is today. Um, so then with punk, I mean, I got into, wow, man. I mean, I got into dead Kennedy's. And I got into kind of all the usual, like like what you would expect, right? Like Sex Pistols and Ramones and Clash and like all that kind of mall stuff that you could get into. Yeah, but the, was, most of those bands were like already kind of done at that point. They're done. Like yeah, you're... they're done. I mean, I'm just, I'm like, I'm like studying ancient yeah. history. Totally, totally. But then like, um, but I was lucky enough to like fall into this like crew in high school um that like knew the good shit they were like a couple years older a year older a couple years older and they like had like they had like mixtapes and they were just like here check this out and then i and then i got into like you know propagandi and fyp and like you know quincy punks and blank 77 and all those kind of bands of that of that moment that were like that were like big but underground but like you know underground like bands and this was like just before like you know like green day was on the radio so like people kind of understood punk it was just before like rancid like hit really big and was on snl and shit like that so it was like this moment where like you could kind of it was accessible for this moment yeah you could kind of you could walk into like any and they were like also sorry i'm going off on a whole thing here but there dude there were like five or six incredibly dope record stores like within like walking distance of one another in Westport. So I could go to Groove Farm and then walk to Spiny Normans across the street and then walk up to Recycled Sounds and then go down to Vintage Vinyl and go down to Street Side. And it was like, and in any one of these places, you could like just explore like a world of like of music that like, you know maybe you're just buying stuff for how it looks maybe you're buying stuff for like the font that the band used to like write their name and whatever whatever but it but it was all worthwhile and it like all and it turned and like some of it was not so good but a lot of it just you know turned out to be both incredible like musically like sonically really interesting and then also really formative and like that was like that was like I was very very lucky to have grown up in a time where you could kind of have that experience obviously life's different now but you know yeah no and i i don't also also hold on am i the oldest person that's ever been on your podcast no 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 dude really 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 i'm i'm certain okay all right fine i want to i want to name any names (laughs) all right fine all right fine all right no but um no and this is okay this is like a tangent that i don't think will even go anywhere this is just like me speculating on something you just said but like you, you say like yeah some some of the records you you pick up aren't great and I, I i was i just had the thought that like and i don't know like how big the implication of this is but like it's pretty rare 
at like in the year 2021 for someone to go in to a record store and buy an album that they've never heard before and like there's a chance that they won't like it like I, I think most of the time if you're buying vinyl at, like you've probably heard at least one or two songs on it before and you're you know you're probably going to enjoy that record so like I, I'm just kind of I guess I wonder like what what that leads to like music like as in I don't know just like in the music world just the fact that like people aren't listening to like you don't you don't get stuck with anything that you don't want to listen to really anymore yeah dude that's such a good observation i mean that's exactly right and you can test you can test drive everything before you buy it you know what i mean back in those days like so like a couple of things like one there was there was a price point difference like Vinyl records today, yeah, yeah, the are like a, they're a thing, right? I mean, like they're a thing. They're priced, you know, they're priced the way they're priced for 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 a couple of different reasons. Some just the economics. They're they're pretty expensive to make and so on. But like, but but a lot of it is just like it's become like this consumer collectible kind of thing where it's like you know, like 30 bucks for an LP at a record store. Like you don't even blink. You're like, yeah, that's just what it costs. You know, back in those days, it was nothing like that. You're getting seven inches for three bucks. No, I mean, everything was three bucks, five bucks. It was like any, you just had in your pocket, you know, you just had it to spend. And so that's one part of it. The other part of it was like, it was this moment of like pure exploration for me personally, like musically. Where I'm like, where, where it was like, just give me, you know, just give it to me. I don't care what it is. If it's like, if it's, if it like falls under this like big tent idea of like punk and it's got a cool cover and it's got like some like political shit on it, or it's got like, or, or it's funny yeah. or whatever, just what's five bucks, you know, it's either this or like, uh, extra value meal up the street at mickey d's or whatever so just give me the seven inch and i'm cool so like it's funny i still have so much of of, of that early record collection. i don't have all of it i wish i had all of it i had to get rid of some of it but i have a ton of that early record collection still and i and i will just go back and i'll just have a day where i'm like i'm gonna spin every seven inch and every 45 in the stack and just check it out and some of it is just hot fucking garbage like it's just bad music and i don't mean no offense to these bands back in those days but you know it was just kids making music and sometimes it hit and sometimes it didn't but some of those little records are like still i'm just like this is amazing like i cannot believe like why did this you know i'll listen to stuff and be like why did this band not get huge because it's like a beautiful record and you never know but anyway i'm happy i have all of it you know yeah, no, are, are you still buying vinyl with any frequency or? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, not so much, you know, like <clears throat> the price point is, I mean, look, I, you know, I make, I'm lucky to have to like make more money today than I did when as a teenager. That's a good thing. But um, so, you know, I got a little bit more to spend if I want to, if I want to go out um, and buy records and I like doing it because record stores are incredible, incredible local businesses. And they're like still the kind of heartbeat of, um, of, uh, a community, you know, um, but it's still expensive. (laughs) I'll go out maybe once in a while. I'm like, I'm going to go drop a bag on some records, but like, you know, not all the time. No. Yeah. I have to, I have to limit myself in, in some way. So I get it. Um, so yeah, I guess 
uh, you know, you're talking about like getting into all these these older punk albums. So when when did you first start like going to shows and like kind of figuring out like what the the scene was like in like in the early days for you? Yeah, dude, I've just been catching up about this stuff on um, there's this hilarious Facebook group that my buddy Andy started. It's like old punks. It's like old Kansas City and Lawrence area punks Facebook group where people are like swapping stories and pictures and flyers and shit. It's it's a lot of fun. But um, I mean, the first so my first ever gig, like on like not like a not like a arena show or something out at Sandstone. My first ever gig was like at G Coffee. So G Coffee was a long time, you know, venue, big warehouse type venue out in Olathe. But the first version of it was this absolute hole in the wall at 79th and Quivira in a strip mall. And, um, dude who knows how i knew about these things like i don't i don't recall the provenance of like how i heard that there was that there were like there were bands playing but anyway i went friends and maybe you saw a flyer at the record store so i guess man something i mean i feel like i don't know i was young boy i was young i mean i was like maybe middle school something Mm -hmm. like that i mean i was a kid no i'm I'm really grateful i was just like that's you sorry to Okay. No, go on. Like I, I'm, I'm like so grateful that I like went to my first DIY show when I was like 14. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was that's almost exactly how well, old I was. Yeah. 14, something right around there, maybe yeah. freshman, something. And anyway, and I went, and I was like, "This is amazing," and there were, I mean, it was just mind blowing. It was like, I mean, really, it was a shoebox. It was so tiny, and it was in the basement of a coffee shop. And there were like maybe 20 other kids there, but it felt like a million because it was so small. And there were like kids like, like um, just absolutely destroying each other. Just like crap, just like friends. Like obviously they were like really good friends who were just like elbowing each other in the teeth for fun, you know? And I was just like, this is, this is like a wild, amazing scene. And the music was cool. And I ended up meeting meeting um, some other kids there at the show back in those days. Like, God, like I think about it now. I'm like, God, could you imagine just talking to a stranger at a show? What a nightmare. Um, but like back in those days, you're just like, hey, you know, <laughs> and um, they're still like my like really, really good homies. And they, I've been friends with some of those kids forever. So that was my first kind of gig. And then I just started just, and then it's like, start going to shows, going to shows, listen to more music. And then like, you kind of, you know, like you listen to music, you're like, okay, I like this band. I like this band. And then you like see the, and then you like check the flyers at the, at the, um, at the record stores and at the coffee shops. And, you know, and then you just start going. I went and saw, I saw a band called Total Chaos. You ever heard of Total Chaos? That's not a. No, I'm thinking. I think I'm thinking of Total Fury. I don't think I know Total Chaos. Your Total Chaos is this like hilarious. Like they were on Epitaph, and they were like the fucking funniest band. They were like total like fashion. Like imagine like the most punk looking human you've ever is seen. Like, like, a, like a street punk thing, kind of. It's total street punk, yeah. like perfect, like li- like Liberty Spikes that were like 18 inches tall and like 
you know, like precisely manicured leather jackets with like I, I saw the casualties at Warp Tour. Like I, I yeah, know, yeah, I yeah. Know. It's like the casualties, oh, but it was like, yeah, it's like casualties if the casualties were like perfectionists. Like, about, were, were you too cool for Warp Tour, or did you did you catch it? No, I, I was like too cool for Warp Tour. <laughs> Fuck out of here. No, I definitely I was definitely at Warp Tour. Hundred percent. I was at the first couple Warp Tours I went to, and then I was too cool for Warp Tours. But the first couple Warp Tours I went to. Just like out in a out in a out in a parking lot, they're awful. They're hot as fuck and just like brutal. But um, they're amazing. But like, yeah, those those early warp tours are very good shows. Anyway, that's it. And then I started going to gigs. And then and then a place called the Daily Grind opened. Daily Grind, legendary, legendary Kansas City music venue that was open for maybe all of eighteen months um, before it got shut down. But I like saw every band I ever wanted to see at the Daily Grind. Uh, it, no, and I, I know, I know Fugazi played at G Coffee at some point. Did you, did you see them there or? I did I saw? Did yeah, Fugazi played twice in Kansas City that I know of in my in my time mm-hmm. as a music person, music fan. They played at G Coffee and then they played at El Torreon. And I did not go to the El Torreon show when I should have. That was like the legendary show. Oh. The show at G Coffee was quite mundane, kind of comparatively. No, yeah, I'm guessing. No- because they've made a point about like the no the no moshing stuff, so I'm guessing Dude. nobody's getting their their teeth elbowed in. Nobody's getting so. the teeth. No, they like stopped. They like stopped the show in the middle. Yeah. Ian stopped the show in the middle of the show. He was like, mm-hmm. "You guys, you gotta you gotta just stop that." <laughs> I, I wonder, like, you know, what's really sick. I don't know if you've heard about like apparently like, oh, so Ian Ian was doing some interview like a few years ago. And he, they like kind of just he like offhandedly like someone asked him about like oh is there ever going to be a Fugazi reunion? He's like oh yeah we still get together and play all the time but I don't know if we'll do a show. I'm like what y'all yeah, just yeah, yeah. hanging out playing Fugazi songs? Like, sure, but, sure. No, and I I'm just like one of my favorite YouTube videos that I like go back to like pretty much like once a year I feel like is uh, Ian giving like a talk at the library of congress about like the fugazi like live archive i don't know if have you ever done any digging on that website no i haven't no um but yeah no i mean it's supposed to be incredible and yeah like the dc punk you know the dc punk archives um are like that was like a thing that was um that was being really actively organized when i was living in dc and a lot of really great people um some friends of mine and some folks who i just knew from around were like hands-on involved in putting that together so it was very cool yeah uh, oh yeah i know well, i've i've looked around on the fugazi one and there's yeah like they it's kind of like a just a giant kind of wiki style thing of like shows set lists flyers bootleg recordings yeah but well, what's what's the what's the dc one you're talking about i don't think i've heard about that one DC Punk Archive is a um, is uh, yeah this is not this is not Library of Congress this is uh, and I'm sorry to complain those things right. yeah no this is like a DC Public Library um, initiative that was like um, how to um, how to archive and make available all of DC's kind of rich history in the in the punk scene um, going back to kind of the early early days like first wave hardcore. Um, and then on and on from there, like told through, you know, through discord and, and, and otherwise. Right. And like, yeah, a bunch of my friends were really, really, um, again, like hands on, you know, putting that together and, and, um, and, you know, promoting it and making it real. And then like, and then the, 
the DC public library also just put on gigs and they were good. They like put like, you know, give played and like priests played a like library show and they were always free, always all ages. And um, yeah, man, DC is kind of a different place, but. Hey, how, how long did you live in DC? I lived there for uh, about five years. Hmm. Yeah. Almost five years. I loved it. That was a, it's a weird city. I don't know that I would go back. Um, just cause it's like, it's a very particular place. It's really expensive and it's really, it's got like a real like town and gown kind of vibe where it's like, you know, DC, like Washington, like nobody, nobody calls it DC on the news. They call it like Washington. Mm. Um, you know, and that's like, you know, the capital, the kind of government infrastructure, and then like all of the weird shit that, like orbits at infrastructure, all the lobbyists, all the law firms and all that kind of thing. And then, um, and then there's like the town and then there's like, you know, DC, that's like, you know, chocolate city, a, a city that was like majority black for most of its existence. Like, um, and, uh, and, you know, is like generally pretty cool, pretty diverse, pretty eclectic. And, um, and has this super vibrant, like underground, you know, music scene that is both um, vibrant, you know, today and super important historically. And it was just, it was awesome to get to live there and just kind of like, even just like dip my toe in that for a little bit and, you know, go to gigs. And I was doing a ton of music writing when I was living in DC. So got to really like, you know, tell cool stories and got to like see the, um, scene evolve uh, in that way that's great what, what was like where were you writing and like what what kind of stories were you doing oh god well you know this man i was writing for vice yeah uh, I, I know about uh, you I know, know about, about the noisy days. yeah i was writing for vice man for uh uh for dan ozzy who's a former editor there uh at noisy which was the vice music imprint and dan's great man i mean dan's like a very 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 good dude and good editor and just literally a music enthusiast. Yeah. He just announced the, the book today. Yeah. 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 Totally. I'm happy. I'm happy for him. And he like, he got out of there. So that was good. And then is also writing a good book and got out of there. Everybody that, that I knew that was amazing. there like left pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Kim Kelly is a good friend of mine and was the kind of uh, extreme, you know, music writer there. Yeah. Anyway, so I was writing for Vice and then, but I also got to write for NPR, which was really great. And I got to write for Bandcamp, which is also like a pleasure, like very, very cool set of editors and editorial perspective over there. And yeah, no, I, I see you I see you tweeting with uh, Lars sometimes. And Lars is my guy, man. He's my upstairs neighbor. Lars is my upstairs neighbor in DC. Okay. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we're yeah, we're very, very good friends. And um uh yeah, like yeah, he covers a lot of cool stuff. Wonderful dude with the most amazing taste in music and one of the most amazing record collections I've ever seen in my life. So he's a good, he's a good dude. Yeah. He, he actually like kind of uh, scooped me on some, like on a, a local artist that I'm, I'm meaning to write about soon. Oh yeah. Like I think on his newsletter, he featured uh, this girl, Lady Epper, who's like in Lawrence and is doing like, like kind of like Memphis, uh like 90s memphis rap style oh. stuff like yeah. horrorcore type shit and right. i think he i think he like got like 
I think he got her location mixed up or something, but he he put he put her in like the the newsletter that he's doing. I think so. That was cool That's to cool. see. Very cool. Um, tell me about Anti State. Tell me about Anti State. Oh <laughs> my god, there's nothing to tell. There's nothing to tell. No, there's come on. I just didn't tell. I mean, it's just, it was, dude, it was, it, there's really not. I mean, there's really nothing, nothing to even. Hey, how, how old were you when, when you were in that band? And oh, what, I was what in were that you band, like into at that point? I was in that band from when I was 15 until I was about 19, mm-hmm. And did, uh, did you just have that, that one demo that you posted? You obviously care, no. care about this band to, to some extent. You posted the, the, the demo oh, on dude, Bandcamp. that was like straight up like early pandemic boredom uh <laughs> like you can see the date that I, I i put it up it was like march 2020 <laughs> um and like yeah my buddies and i who were in the band we were just like chatting and i was like dude you know what i'm gonna do i was like we never we kicked ourselves because we never we were so we were like so, we were so chaotic oh my god we're such chaotic band and like kind of went through a couple different guitar players and recorded a couple times and then just never like got our shit together to like put out a record. So anyway, so we have these like, we have these uh, masters sitting around in people's like dusty attics and basements and the drummer of the band, Joe was like, I have one of our demos. I have like, that was, that was the first we recorded no, that's the second one. We recorded two, one of which we recorded at um, at Brandon Phillips' studio. Brandon Phillips from The Architects and now Brandon Gadgets. Phillips' Condition, Gadgets back in those days. Um, we recorded at his studio. I don't know where that went. That was a good record. Anyway, um, and we were like, let's just put it up online. But that's as much as, but that's really as much. I mean, there's really nothing to say. I what? mean, we just, we just played, we just played gigs. We practiced in my you know joe's parents basement i mean it was just a high school punk band you know what it was yeah go on no what 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 bands were you all like what what bands did you all like agree on like what were you excited about at that point dude we were all listening to like um well one of the bands it's funny like one of the bands that really that like made me like made it kind of like occur to me that I was like, Oh, we can just do this. Yeah. Was this punk band out of Lawrence that had been around for a couple of years called black label and black label, like was, they were incredible. I mean, and they were, you know, a few years older than us. Like I said, they've been playing for a while and we caught them at a couple of shows. And I was like, and, and, you know, and they were from around they're from Lawrence, or whatever. They're like from around here. And I was like, Oh, I was like, wow. I was like, you can just do that. Yeah. It's like that was it was like i don't know why it was like so eye-opening but like i you know i heard a lot of local bands and they were just kind of here and there but i heard them and i was like oh that's good and they like had had a seven inch out and had a tape out and i was like mind blown you know the black label is really good but yeah i don't know if I've they, were, they were they were they're they super influential matt um uh, the guy in the band and uh he he passed away but um uh just that vocal style i was just like that's so cool and i just like i thought that was like that was the shit i wanted to do back in those days but we started out the very first incarnation of the band we were like playing circle jerks covers and um and that's like kind of how it started that's kind of like a vibe a little bit and then 
and then we like listen to yeah like street punk a lot of street punk a lot of oi a lot of uh this band called the pissed who are still really good i was listening to their record the other day they're very good and then i got really into um bands on this label called profane existence that was like out of minneapolis and they were like straight up like kind of crust punk they like lived on this line between like punk and like some kinds of metal and thrash and that kind of thing and they were like super like political and fucking white guys with dreadlocks and like patches all over their shit you know no i got I, it I, I got into them for a while yeah oh it's uh well it's like all all punk is kind of like this to a certain extent but i think all of these like niches that you're into have like a through line of like very overt anti authoritarian like kind of themes and stuff so it's it's great to see you doing the the antitrust just kind of following that that through line there that's so i mean thank you for saying that i mean i appreciate you um that's and like i am some i sometimes look back at like my political education and this kind of arc of my life that i took to get to this place and I mean, I went to school, I went to college, I took classes in college about politics and whatever, but my political education came first and foremost from, from music. It, it came from, from punk, it came from, you know, from propaganda and um, from like those like first like bad religion records that I listened to and, and um, you know, all that kind of thing. And, and then on into like, you know, crass and the whole crass records movement and subhumans all the good political british stuff but that was that was how i learned all this stuff man like when would i have heard like when in my life until i got to college maybe but when would i have like read noam chomsky or like howard zinn and like and like you know like picked up books on like the ak press distro or whatever had i not like gone to see like propaganda when I was like 16 years old and walked into like their merch room and there was like this, you know, like buffet table of like books. And I was like, Whoa, I was like, I better read this shit. I mean, and that was, and that was it. And like, I just never really wavered. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe that's a narrow path to take. I don't know, but I just uh-huh. never really wavered. I just like, it's changed and it's moved around and I'm, you know, I'm whatever, but like that, that education is still really near and dear to me today. Yeah. Um, so yeah. When, uh, when did you first, what, what were your first bylines? When did you first start writing? Like, were you, were you doing like high school journalism and I'm guessing? Dude, actually, no, not really. I like took, I took a journalism class in high school I was not into it. I thought it was very boring. Um, and I, I didn't get my first byline until I like anywhere until I was out of school. There was, man, what's that dude's name? Anyway, his name is not important. So right when I, right about the time I graduated high school, the pitch got bought out by, New Times, which was the big alt-weekly publisher back in those days. And I think it's kind of gone now, but um, it bought out the pitch. And there was a lot of uproar, especially like in any kind of underground community in Kansas City. It was like the pitch went corporate. 
pitches, they're like sellouts, whatever. So the old, the former editor of the pitch who felt the same way quit or got fired in the, in the transition or whatever. And he went and started this short, extremely short lived alt weekly competitor called EKC. It was like, it was like literally like first wave internet where it was like everything. It was like the E with the big circle around it, you know, like online thing, like E, like e-commerce. It's like commerce, but it's electronic. It's like online, you know, whatever. It's called EKC. And, um, and, uh, and I read it and I was like, oh man, I want to, I like, I was like, you know, I was like, I bet I could write something for this. And so um, I, man, how did I even get, I mean, I got in touch with him somehow. I probably saw an email address and like, Mm -hmm. and like shot him an email or just went and knocked on their office was down in the river market. And I like probably just went and knocked on the door and introduced myself. And I was like, Hey, I want to write for you. And I'm sure I was like, I'm sure it was like about what I was like, I don't know. I listen to music. So my first ever bylines were me reviewing straight up reviewing CDs random cds um for ekc nice. and yeah and i would and he had he had a deal with some some record store way out in the boonies somewhere where i could go like once every two weeks and pick out three records and he would just give them to me for free and i would review them and i'm sure he got like a nice you know quarter page ad out of that yeah i think um probably at least half um of all uh, music journalism careers begin with like, oh, I could get this album or get into this show for free if I'm writing about it. <laughs> no doubt, so, no doubt, no doubt about that. So it's yeah. a great pipeline. It's a very good pipeline, and yeah, I was like, man, my very first, my very first byline was uh, was music writing, and then I did, I ended up doing some like longer features for EKC, which was like my first real feature writing, mm-hmm. and then I like wrote some random longer features for like tattoo magazines. It was total chaos, man. It was just like the most random shit. Like I would just like see a magazine on a newsstand and be like, Oh, they hadn't, you know, like some article would catch my eye and I would, I would just like write them and be like, hi, let me write for you. <laughs> With like no, you know, no, no like portfolio, no, like nothing. Just like, yo, let me write for you. No, you don't even have LinkedIn yet. How do you, how do you, how are you getting work? Right. I had no Twitter. I was not, not verified anywhere uh, in, in, uh, in like meat space or online. I was unverified human. And uh, luckily enough, they let me write for these places and I got some, I got some work in and then. Wait, are, are you writing about music for the tattoo magazine or are you writing, are you talking to people about their tattoos? Dude, I like literally wrote, I was just like, <laughs> it was random. I was like, there was like, there's like a tattoo, there's like a tattoo convention coming to Kansas City. Let me write about it, you know? And it was like just Gonzo, it was just Gonzo style. It was just like <laughs> me showing up and like taking random ass notes about bullshit. Yeah, so like, this this guy's doing, he's doing some pretty cool skulls. Uh, that's, that's cool. <laughs> uh, check this guy out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was comparing the... Are you, are you, are you even tatted, Ron? I don't know if... I... Uh, yeah, no, I don't have any tattoos at all. <laughs> I'm, gonna get, I'm, just, I'm just trying to get into that Jewish cemetery, Aaron. You know the deal. Oh, right? man. No, I'm, I'm trying to get kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm in there with you right now. I'm, I don't, yeah, I don't know if that's going to change. I, I have tattoos. Listeners at home, I have tattoos. Oh, wow. 
I think I did, but, I, but like I wasn't into tattoos back. I was like young. I was super young. I didn't have any tattoos and couldn't afford it. You know what I mean? I just like had friends who were tattoo artists and then like and like I sat around tattoo shops and like watched skateboarding videos a lot. They're like, hey, uh, can I practice on you? And I, yeah, <laughs> bro, I can tell you stories. Yep. Anyway, I won't. I won't. Uh, podcasts are for telling stories, Ron. I I don't know if you know this. I don't know that. I've never listened to podcasts. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I don't know. You know, like one of my first tattoos was, um, it, I mean, exactly that kind of thing where it was like, where it was like, all right, I like, I just want to like, it was like a dude. Dude, this is a fuck, man. Like, what, what am I thinking about? Like, dude, I was so incredibly stupid back in the day. Like, I'm still dumb, but bro, back, like, like back in those days, it was like my, like, two brain cells were like in a fist fight all the time trying to figure out who was going to think something. And there's this dude who was like straight up like midlife crisis, like um, career change biker dude who somehow got a job working at a place called Zowie's that's in the spot that was in the spot where Buffalo exchange is now in Westport. And, and he was like, I think I might've even been 17. I wasn't old enough to get tattoo. He was like, he was like, if you just like, let me like work on a thing on you, I'll just, I'll, you know, I'll do it. I'll do whatever you want. I was like, okay, cool. But I described this, like, I think I was listening to the bouncing souls a lot at that moment. And I was like, I want to do like a heart with like some flames around it. It's fucking corny. Right. And I want to do it on my shoulder. And then I picked that. I mean, bro. I picked this, this like part of your shoulder that like, touch it, Aaron, your shoulder, touch it. There's nothing there. It That's is a lot of literally, bone. it is literally bone <laughs> on any human body. It doesn't matter how big and buff you are. This spot is bone and skin. Yeah, yeah. There's no, no protection. And, and I was like, I want it right here. And he's like, all right, bro. And he, and I sat in his chair and he fucking cranked up like Pantera level, like whatever it was. I don't remember, but it was like floor stomping, fucking like probably like low key or high key racist, like crazy metal, like fucking trucker metal. And he's had long ass hair and he's kind of a big dude. And he's like into it. Like he's probably on fucking meth or something. And he's just into this music and he's just, fucking rocking super hard and he's stomping his feet oh no and he's also giving me literally giving me a tattoo at the exact same time and i mean he is grinding my bones with this with the needle of this tattoo gun <laughs> okay so now we have to see the tattoo it's going cool. i had to come finally had to cover oh, it covered up oh okay. i finally had to cover it up my homie <laughs> shout out to uh to megan mack who used to be at mercy seat now she's at exile right up the street from me shouts to megan megan covered it up and she is an incredible artist and i would trust her with my life but this dude like i mean i had this blowout fucked up tattoo on my shoulder up here forever forever i like he, he like he turned me off to tattoos i was like i was like no way i'm doing that ever again what's, what's, what's the cover up you know see it's like yeah it's just like it's a it's an eagle and a snake. That's it. 
But it's very beautiful. Oh, it's like an eagle catching a snake. It's like this kind of good versus evil classic. Yeah, the, the Mexican, like flag, Mexi- uh, Mexican flag. Mexican yeah, flag. Yep, yeah. you got it. You got it. You got it. Same thing. Yep, I got my snake. You're, you're a half Jewish, half Latino, right? That's, <laughs> That's right. No, no. It's just a nice design. Yeah. She did, and she did a and she did a wonderful job, and it's all covered up. Mm. Um, yes. So yeah, you're doing you're doing music features and stuff. I, I guess I want to know when you make the jump to doing kind of more like serious political antitrust type stuff. In college. I mean, in oh, college yeah. it was, well, I mean, I, I, I started doing more serious journalism in college mm. and I was like, I was like features editor at campus ledger uh, props, campus ledger. Yeah. And, uh, and um, that, and I was like, I like had my own like politics column and I would just, and it was like, yeah, like, it was like 9-11 time. It was very stressful. It was very, it was, yeah, 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 it was a very, very stressful time to be. It was like the beginning of this endless, endless parade of stress as, as like an American. I don't remember being very stressed out before then. And then it was like, boom, 9-11, stress, and it never went yeah. away. And now I'm All so right. stressed out. Were you, were you sending shots at uh, Rush Limbaugh in your columns? <laughs> No, I was like, but I was very anti-war. I mean, you know, it was like all, me and everybody I knew was was like when that shit happened, we were like, we're going to war forever. And we are going to like bomb like, you know, brown people for as long as we possibly can. And these motherfuckers, you know, we all knew and back you, in those you weren't days, wrong. Or was that we were none of us were wrong. Back in like back in those days, we like we knew who Dick Cheney was and we knew who Don Rumsfeld was. And these were like oil guys and war guys, and it was like bro you know how this is going to go down for for eternity so i was writing that but i was also still i was still like really green as a journalist and i was like probably too into hunter thompson so i'd also do like a lot of kind of gonzo stuff a lot of which is it's it's an okay as a writer it's an okay skill to to um to have and to foster because like you do you do get a feel for what it means to write narrative style and to do like observational journalism rather than like phone to your ear pen and pad type journalism you really it's a much different skill like going to a place observing the world around you writing it down building it into a story making it interesting and making it colorful and that's like kind of what Gonzo is. But anyway, I was still just like super rough. But then once I got to KU, that's when it was like, all right, we got to get serious. And it's funny. I mean, it's funny because like, I'm like, like I said, you know, like I grew up in the punk world and like politics are like just inherent to it. Like, it's just like literally woven into the fabric of the, of the music and the culture. And then you get into journalism. And if you really just want to do real work at a newspaper ass journalism it like strips all that out of you or like muffles it yeah ron you have to be objective objective journalism right you have to be objective you can't just you know like now i look back and i'm like what the fuck was i thinking because it was like a it was like a charade i mean i was like literally just like kind of half like you know play acting the whole time I'm sure some like I'm sure some like right wing person will listen to this and be like, ah, I knew it. They're all liberals. But yeah, like, no, no, anyway, half of being a student journalist is being like, what, what am I doing right now? What, what, huh? 
yeah yeah it was very yeah it was very um it was like an out-of-body experience it was like i'm like i have to write this and like shoot straight i'll tell a little story and then i'll and then i'll and then i'll move on about this but like i was working um after after school i uh I worked for the star for a while and then I worked and then I got, that was like a kind of part-time gig and I needed a full-time real, like real, real job. So I moved down to Joplin, Missouri and I worked at the Joplin globe. And then I came and I was down there for like not long. And then I got an offer to come back up to the Lawrence journal world and at where I, where I moved and where I worked for a couple of years. And um, Richard Dawkins was like a huge, huge character in like the world at that moment right like and and there was a ton of debate in kansas about like whether you're going to teach evolution in schools and so ku would always have richard dawkins come and speak and he was like you know he's like the kind of poster boy for atheism and for evolution and science and whatever back in those days and um so i would go i would I would like, in, I like worked the night shift and I was like, inevitably I would get assigned to go cover this speech and I'd go and I'd write about it and whatever. And then I'd go to file my story and it was always like, well, you know, you have to have a comment from the other side. And I'm like, the other side, the other side of what? And they're like the other side of the debate, the debate about what? The debate about evolution. And I'm like, you fucking expect me to call somebody who doesn't believe in literally evolution and put their opinion in this newspaper that people are going to read for the news. And they're like, yeah. So, all right. So I have to like call some, you know, whatever, some like, you call up Westboro. You're like, yeah, Dude, I mean, it might as well. I might literally might as well have been. So anyway, it was a weird experience. And, um, I was very happy when I got into writing about monopoly power and about antitrust because I found it to be much more of a natural fit. And um, yeah, it's like you you have your your side figured out, so it's like you have your side figured out. The work is all that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you have your side figured out. Everyone's still, you know, like you know, people are obviously still trying to, um, trying to, uh, get their various opinions in, in your stories and so on. And some are, some are correct and some are not correct, but that's okay. But, um, anyway, it was just a better fit than having to do that kind of stuff yeah. where I was like, I'm not gonna, I didn't feel good questioning literally evolution yeah. <laughs> in the newspaper. Weird, but, weird thing. What, what are your first, like, um, I guess, uh, publications but also yeah like beats assignments for the monopoly antitrust stuff yeah i mean i get into it because uh in in lawrence i was covering cops and courts and so i kind of you know i sat in on a lot of trials and like did a lot of that kind of thing and then um after i left the journal world i worked uh i did some work for for bloomberg um and uh also covering white collar crime and again like a uh, total like morality play which i loved i was like these people are criminals they're scum you know 
and I covered, I covered the federal courts. And then I moved from there. I moved to London, going to the whole story, but I moved to London and I didn't have a job. I was very confident um, at the time that I was going to uh, just move, move over to Bloomberg, London. Like, like it's the same place. And I like showed up very confident in like a sport coat and a tie. And I was like, Hey, we did the, I did a big interview with the editor over there. And, and um, at the end of the interview, the, the uh, editor from Bloomberg was like, wow, you don't know shit. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, I was like, you mean, I was like about what he was like about British law and regulation. And I was like, Oh yeah. So I didn't know anything. So he told me to go, go somewhere else for a while and then come back and talk mm. to him later. So, so I was like jobless in London for a while, which was very stressful. I was oh, very sure. poor. I was do like, you, oh, poor man. Do, do you know shit about British law now? I do. Oh, that's good. I definitely do. They don't, they don't teach us that over here. They don't. It's funny. They don't. And like, <laughs> I did, I did like a little bit of research and I went in confident, you know, just this pure American. Like, okay. Yeah. You guys, you, you drive on the left side of the road. Uh, it's the prime minister. There's no president. Yeah. I, I think I'm good. I was like, I, I was like, I wrote down the names of these like three organizations that are, that I think are interesting and that I would definitely use as sources. And he was like, fuck out of here, you know? So, um, so that was, but you that. got it together. You figured it out. I did figure it out. I, I wasn't, I was not jobless for too long, luckily, because boy, were we broke. You, um, you weren't, you weren't, you weren't just sitting around on the dole. You weren't, uh, I was not on the dole. They would not let me on the dole. Maybe if they let me on there, I'd still be sitting around. No, they wouldn't let me on there. Yeah. So I, so I got a job with a magazine that, that covers antitrust law. And I was like, you know, eager beaver. I was like, I was like, I was like sure. Let me, you know, I was like, let me, let me at it. <laughs> I'll learn all about it. And this little place was like, was like, this guy's a real writer. He's got clips and everything. And um, so they gave me the job and, uh, and it, and it stuck. And I did, I, I did really like the uh, subject matter and I thought it was, um, it taught me a lot about power and about politics and about money and the way the economy worked. And I was fascinated by it and I still am, you know, I'm happy. I, I'm happy. I, it was all very, all very fortunate, but um, worked out. That's great. Um, I, no, oh yeah. Did um, did did you interact much with the British, like the the music scene when you were in London? Like, because I, I I was scrolling through some of your your bylines and I, I saw you did like the UK punk roundup for Noisy at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah, I mean. Yes and no. I mean, like, not in the same way that I was back home. Um, you know, even in Lawrence, I mean, like living in Lawrence, you just go to gigs, just that's just like on a nightly basis, mainly because every place you want to hang out, there's a show. So you just go catch a show. Um, in London, it's not that easy. And I was like, very, very poor. And I did not know a lot of people, um, especially at the first six months or whatever that I was there, you know, just kind of like, I'm just like trying to learn the neighborhood. I'm trying to like not lose my job. So, you know, it took me a while, but towards the end, towards the end of my stay there, I would definitely, um, I would go to gigs and it was a lot of fun. There were like, I would like go, I would, you know, I'd, I'd see a little bit of local stuff. Mainly I was like catching American bands when they were like on their UK tours. Mm. 
And so um, it took me a while to kind of get some real exposure to like the British like punk scene and um, and so on. But uh, yeah, by the time I left, I was like, I was going to shows like pretty consistently. What were the best sets you caught while you were out there? Oh, dude. Um, this band called Caves. Man, I love Caves. They like don't. Uh, Lou from Caves went on. Uh, they play bass in uh, the Warriors now. And, um, but, uh, but they sang and played guitar in this band called Caves that is absolutely phenomenal. Like that, like perfect for, for that time that moment in time it was like very like you know fest style ladder man style like big hooks like sing-alongs yeah. like yeah yeah that like lovely kind of punk that 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 i'm still very very fond of um so i caught i caught i caught caves a few times but like i caught like i saw coalesce on like oh, their nice. uk tour like play um play the world's end and man i mean they just absolutely shredded like i've seen coalesce many many times but that was like a very special show um that was cool man i don't know and then i saw some other like more low-key stuff i saw a dude named william elliott whitmore um who's uh yeah you know will yeah he's he's a friend of mine and um and uh he came through when i was living there and you know like you go see him in lawrence and he's just driving just down the road from iowa and he'd come and he'd play the jackpot or the bottleneck or wherever and you know there'd be a good crowd there'd be 50 people or so nice crowd but like not wouldn't sell out a place and it was pretty low-key and then he played london and he played a place called anyway it doesn't matter big venue big ish three four hundred people and I mean, it was packed to the walls, like throbbing, packed to see Will. And I'm like, wow, I just, it just blew my mind. I'm like, oh yeah, like A, London's a very big place. And B, like, you know, it's like a rare, a rare gem just coming over for like, I don't know that he had ever toured the UK before. So he shows up and I mean, it was just wild, man. And he's this will, you know, will back in those days was drinking. And just one of those shows where like the bartender, like gives the singer, gives the dude performing like a whole bottle of Jack Daniels. Cause that's like the swill they like had over there. That was like American and will just like, and you know, will, will's, will stick is like, you know, take a drink and then pass it to the person in the front row and have them pass it on. And um, it was just wild, man. Wild nights. There are very cool shows over there. There are also shows I completely regret missing. Like I, I could absolutely kick myself. Yeah. Um, there was a show right when I first moved there, like maybe two weeks after I moved there, subhumans, British subhumans were playing at like some little venue and it was kind of like their farewell tour. And I didn't go. I was just like too weirded out by the city and too like broke and too anxious and just didn't go. I, uh, I saw subhumans with, with MDC at Davies Uptown, like, five ten years ago i think my dad would have taken me it was probably yeah probably closer to 10 years ago and uh there's 
there's the funniest picture i was like you know you're you're like a teenager you first started going to shows you're like oh man i want to i want to say hi to the band i want to meet the band and like there's the funniest picture of me with dick lucas like from that show and but like they're they're like great like that was a really fun show that was kind of a privilege to to see a band like that yeah yeah totally absolutely man i i think i think they're still i think they're still playing so it was like their it was like their farewell tour but of course and they're like yeah let's keep going yeah let's keep going these festivals keep paying us to show up so let's go yeah so how are you doing by the way how are you doing i realized that like you know like we're talking about all this and i'm like man I'm like aaron is a dude that like i mean i know you like have you like have a crew and you have friends and whatever but you strike me a little bit like me and like Farah, like some other people I know who are like part of your like social life is literally just going to gigs. Yeah. And it's showing up with like a camera in your hand or a notebook in your hand. And it's like interacting on that, on that level. And like, that's been shut down. I mean, for like, I feel like, I feel like you're like a, you know, like you're part of like the music industry economy. That's like just cratered yeah. with the pandemic. Like how's, how's that been for you? How are you feeling? I mean, I'm, I'm getting by, I'm doing fine, but like the, yeah, the social aspect of it is what's uh, the roughest for sure. And, um, you know, I, I'm doing my best to keep in touch with everyone and uh, be, be chilling. But uh, yeah, no, I can't say it's, it's been fun not, not having that for a year. Yeah, man. Definitely. I mean, there was a time when I was really, in, when I was really doing a lot of music writing when I was in DC, where I was like, if I didn't, it was like my, it was like my ticket out. It was like my ticket out into the world. And it was like my, it was like, a, it was like my, um, <laughs> you know, my notebook in my hand was like, was like my passport to like, go be at a, to like, you know, to go like literally talk to strangers at a gig, which yes. again, like I would never, God, can you imagine like what a nightmare? And, um, and, uh, I, yeah. And I mean, I, you know, to this day, I, there's like a, there's like a part of me that I'm just like, man, maybe it's just go write about a show, but I'm kind of, I've kind of moved on, you know, past that. But when that's taken away, man, I'm that's, I'm sure that's not easy. Yeah. Uh, no. And I was, I was, I wanted to, bring this up uh i i think the last show i saw you at would have been the menzingers at the granada does that sound right to you yeah i think so i went to a few gigs i went to a few gigs after that but i don't think i saw you yeah i saw you menzingers yes what what was your last show oh my last show man saddest show i mean it wasn't sad it was amazing but then Mm -hmm. it was obviously tragic after that i went to the um uh i went to the uh the fountain city ultras uh season kickoff show for sporting kc uh at uh at davies uptown in Mm -hmm. probably mid-february i don't remember the date mid-february 2020 and it was um a really good show uncouth played a bunch of other bands and it was super fun and then three days later davies burned down yeah and then COVID. And it was like the most tragic sequence of events after that very enjoyable gig. Yeah. So anyway, and then right before then I was, I went and saw the anniversaries anniversary show mm. <laughs> with um, uh, not full of get up kids, but with Matt Pryor up in Lawrence at the bottleneck. And that was like, boy, that was like a family reunion, man. There's nothing like that. That was, 
incredibly, incredibly enjoyable. Right. Now it's probably the end of January. So got a couple good shows in before it all shut down. Yeah. Um, I guess um, you, you kind of mentioned this a bit before we started recording, but um, you know, through, through your uh, antitrust stuff, uh, you, you do end up getting a little bit back into music stuff at some points. And uh, I think um, a story you had some like in the last few years was the uh, song kick Ticketmaster thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Boy, I had to have to refresh my memory. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. We're. Um, yeah. Yeah. Song kick was a um, uh, direct competitor to Ticketmaster. Man, Aaron, you're gonna make me. You're gonna make me stretch my memory here a little oh, bit. Sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. I should. No, I should know. I have to. I have to refresh my memory about this stuff for this, like this, like you know, bigger story that I'm working on at the moment that I mentioned. But. Um, yeah, the story goes, as I recall it, uh, you know, they're competitors. They're like a real competitor in the um, event ticketing, you know, market. Yeah. And Ticketmaster, as we all, I mean, I don't have to explain Ticketmaster to anybody. They're like yeah. literally the world's worst, like bad actor, like Monopoly. Yeah. Um, like literally able to like, like tax every single user of any of like Ticketmaster services um, on earth and they do it with impunity. Right. So song kick was a smaller company and, um, and, uh, maybe, maybe Ticketmaster made, tried to buy song kick at some point and song kick like didn't like kind of refuse to do it. And, um, and anyway, so Ticketmaster ends up hiring these like two former engineers, like software engineers for sound kick. And, um, allegedly these, uh, uh, these two former song kick employees end up kind of stealing a bunch of like song kicks old, like proprietary, like data, allegedly, mm-hmm. allegedly, and, um, and giving it to Ticketmaster. So Ticketmaster can like replicate these services. And so, so song kick sues, like sues Ticketmaster and um and so ticketmaster like literally big powerful incredibly wealthy ticketmaster owned by live nation by the way live nation is majority owned by this massive company called liberty media um that owns sirius xm and everything else part of this massive conglomerate they just throw money at this thing and in order to settle this lawsuit and kill these very clear antitrust claims, right? Like it's illegal to do what, what Ticketmaster did. It was like an abuse of monopoly power. I will, my, that's my opinion. Yeah. Um, like Ticketmaster just throws enough money at Songkick to just buy it. Just be like, here, I'll yeah. settle. Yeah. Like the terms of the settlement of this lawsuit are like, like here's all this money, make the lawsuit go away. And also now we like own own most of your like intellectual property. We own your database. We own all this other stuff. So essentially like essentially bought out this company. So you see all this stuff. It happens all the time, man. I mean, like that's, I mean, that's like, that's kind of the epitome of bad behavior. Um, and like, you know, but it's not all, it's like, it's not always as nefarious as that, but yeah, the music industry is filled in, in, in every little corner of the industry. Yeah. It's filled with this, 
like this corporate power that um, absolutely like dictates what we pay for things, what we see in here, the kind of music we see in here, the kind of music that's allowed to succeed, succeed, whatever that looks like, to succeed and to, and to not succeed. Um, and so on, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating, like, you know, economic and, and kind of cultural shift yeah. in the way we, we consume this art form that is extraordinarily important to like most people's you know sense of self and our kind of day-to-day lives and so on there was a moment when we could like really kind of control it and um and where artists had a lot of freedom to navigate the industry in their own way the way they saw fit and, you know, you go out, you sell a record, some money goes to the publisher, to the label, to, to you know, whomever, but some money goes right into the artist's pocket. And that's a good way to do things. And that's, you know, that seemed to like work for the industry for a long time. And there was a lot of real diversity and a lot of different sounds kind of would rise to the surface and, and, um, and uh, become popularized that way. And now... Some people still buy records. Not a lot of people still buy records. The industry is making a lot of money now, again. But all that money is going to a different place. And it's not coming back down to the artist. And through all the, through, you know, through all the means, that's, that's because of obviously streaming, right? Versus like digital media purchases and physical media purchases. But it's also because of the, the, narrowing of avenues in radio and you know airplay that way live nations control of venues and and live music you know promotion and so on so suddenly as an artist all these ways you were able to make money and to kind of continue your your craft um are gone so now either you are like you know you can either um work a day job and then also maybe be a musician if you have time for it, which of course is not a great way to like grow your craft and grow your, and grow your art and promote your music and all those kinds of things. Or you don't, or you just say, well, I'll just go do something else with my time. Cause I can't do this. Um, I only, you know, we all, we all love this stuff, but we only love it so much. And then at some point we got to, we got to make some money. So anyway, sorry, I kind of went down a path there, but um, oh, no, I that's that's all like i i think there's plenty of people that are into music that don't give that stuff a lot of thought so i'm i'm happy to let you evangelize for a minute it's tough man um, i mean i don't i don't i don't blame anybody for listen for having a spotify subscription I, I do not believe that we can consume our way out of these kinds of problems these kind of structural problems we can't that's a myth yeah capitalism wants us to think that we can you know, that like we vote with our dollars and so on. But yeah, um, only, it only goes so far. It only goes so far. And, and you know, and um, it's not that Spotify is a bad service. It's that its model is bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and its model is bad because it has the power to make it bad. And because it's like it's cutting deals with other extremely powerful entities like the big three, you know, record labels and Merlin and so on. Yeah. Um, 
that is very advantageous for those labels and for Spotify, but not so for um, the very people who actually make the music industry a real thing. Yeah. Um, and those are musicians because they're seen as expendable. And unless you're like, unless you're like, unless you're weekend, you know, Taylor Swift, Bieber, whatever, yeah. you're just, you yeah, know, the few, next fewer and fewer uh, artists can, can make their living on their art at this point. Can make it real. So like, I mean, so here's, so, so here's the example. So check this out. This is mind blowing. I'm burying the lead an hour into the, an hour and a half into this podcast. Seven, seven artists on Spotify set literally the number seven make about a half a million dollars a year just from Spotify, right? 99% of all of the rest of the artists on Spotify. Now there's, 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 there's also this kind of very narrow little like middle class that makes up the 1%. 99% of artists on Spotify make an average of $25 a year from Spotify. Yeah. I mean, this is literally, you know, people like, like to, you know, it's a little bit of a hyperbole, like the 1% versus the 99%. This is literally nine, the 99% of all artists on Spotify make 25 bucks a year. Yeah. This is, and it's, and it's the, and it's the main way people consume their music through Spotify or through YouTube and YouTube's even worse. YouTube pays nothing. I mean, literally the smallest like penny fractions you can imagine. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. And I, it's funny. You, you say penny fractions, but that, that's the, I think, is it David Turner's David newsletter Turner. that I think I, uh, I sent yeah, to you a while back? If incredible incredible newsletter he's incredibly influential to me he's a he's like he's the dude that's at the that's at the at the like leading edge of all this stuff yeah. i'm like trying to i'm trying to do his work justice by like writing a little bit about the same things that he writes about but yeah, he so lives anyone in- anyone listening find find ron's work on this and and find david turner's work if you want to learn about uh all of the fun stuff that happens with the music streaming industry yeah, I got a big um, story about this coming out in Wired Magazine. Probably be out. Yeah. We're recording this in mid, late February. It'll probably be out early March, I would assume. So check that out. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, no, yeah, but I, I was I was thinking about while while you were talking there, like it. Um, it's funny because you yeah you're talking about like this is like mostly before my time, but like you're you're like like growing up going to shows like punk shows, indie shows, and stuff like. People were really like, I feel like, you know, I hear people talk about like in the 90s and the early 2000s, like really kind of like kicking up a storm over like the corporatization of the music industry and like kind of monopoly powers and stuff like that behind like the labels and all these like in the touring industry to some extent. But like as like as they continue to like flatten the the industry with the dawn of streaming and now just the, the lack of touring which is where like most artists were making all of their money um yeah it's like people like you know people who like like you and me who are like on twitter who are like super plugged in and following tons of like indie artists and stuff like you and me like know all about this stuff but like i feel like since the 90s like less and less average music fans have like really been engaged in thinking 
yeah. about the subject. Yeah, I think that might be true. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the average music fan, I guess. But, yeah. but I mean, look, I mean, I think, you know, this is just like, this is like one kind of like example of this, but it's indicative of this like bigger, of this bigger problem, right? When one of the main problems of this like homogenization of like music, right? Like, which, which we've seen, you know, I don't, I don't have to go into all of, all of like the stats and whatever, but like, you know, songs tend to stay in the, in the Billboard Top 100 for way longer than they used to. There's almost no churn. They're not getting replaced. These are just in like, they're, you know, like what does Kansas City have? Three, four top 40 stations in the area. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, we're just, everyone just consuming the exact same songs over and over and over again, just blasting you in the ears. All, not just on the radio, but, you know, in the commercials, um uh you know and so on back in the 90s even early 2000s you you heard different sounds maybe it's still like top 40 top 40 but that top 40 was comprised of different things it wasn't all pop it wasn't all hip-hop it was like you know it i mean it was even if it, like as corny as it as as, as the stuff is now and i find it i find it very corny looking back on it but like start from like the like the grunge days right and you have these like ostensibly kind of former punks who are like making this interesting if not always palatable music that's making its way onto the radio and into the record stores and onto mtv and all the other different avenues that existed back back then, um, and then and then and then you have and then you have, I don't want to say ostensibly you have real real punks. You have like you know Green Day, whatever whatever ter- whatever Green Day turned into now is a different story. Back in those days, I mean they were like they were like Berkeley scene kids, yeah. and you know and like the same with Rancid and the same with the dudes and Offspring, with the biggest independent record of all time sold 11 million copies and 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 so on so you have these you have these different voices in media and they're saying different things right they have they actually have opinions about things and they don't have to like check with like their publicist as to whether or not they should like share their opinion they don't have to like it's not like you know taylor swift it's been like a megastar for you know 15 years and then finally like let the world's like smallest opinions seep out of into the into the world yeah. about things you know what i mean they're like they're like kids they're you know they were just like this sucks major labels suck all this fucking corporate radio fuck this stuff man and i want to listen to it it's terrible also terrible i don't want to be a part of it you know even if they had a platform on a major label they were like this is not great i don't want to do this you know um, and then you have bands that just like, you know, flat out refused like Fugazi and so on, who were, who the only reason, the only reason anyone listened to Fugazi at the level that, you know, the level Fugazi got to, which was like major label bidding wars, like crazy shit. The only reason Fugazi got to that level is because there was, there was this like diversity of music on the radio and like label execs and A&R guys were like, oh, we can make some money. We can make some money on Fugazi. Right. So you have to have the diversity of sounds and artistry out in the world in popular music and popular culture. If you're going to be able to like, if you have, if you're going to have the platform 
to push back against like this corporatization of music and of music culture. Without um, those voices, it's easy for the average music fan today to not worry about it, not even think about it. And they're like, you have this illusion of choice on Spotify where you're like, oh yeah, I just put on a playlist. Oh yeah, guess who made that playlist for you? Spotify, major labels, you know, Merlin, whatever. Yeah. You didn't pick that, you know, playlist. This is like, this is like a algorithm shot this like playlist out to you yeah. um, because there's some like payola involved or whatever it is, you know? So anyway, that's, so that's kind of my take. Like, you know, I don't blame anybody it's, this is like a structural, a whole structural problem. Yeah. And, and um, the reason you could really have a lot of pushback and a lot of kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, grassroots activism around, around corporate control of the music industry back in those days is because you had good champions for that, yeah. that had a big platform to make a lot of noise about it. Oh, I'm happy. I gotta, that, take, I gotta take, can I take a bio break real quick? Yeah. Thanks. I'll be back in like two seconds. Do it. Ron is taking a break. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be um, in the mood to edit this, to take out this portion. Uh, so I guess I'll probably just do my plugs right now. Um, make sure you follow at Shuttlecock Mag on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Shuttlecockmusic.com is the website. Shuttlecockmag.bigcartel.com is the web store. There's t-shirts, photozines, and buttons for sale. They're all great. You should buy them. And um, I don't know, there's school, there's school Shuttlecock projects that I'm working on right now that I'm excited to share with you all. Um, can't, I don't want to speak on them yet. I feel like Anytime I post or talk about publicly something I'm working on, something gets fucked up. So I'm not going to tell you what I'm working on right now. Um, but I think if you're a fan, you'll be excited about it. Um, can Imagine being the type of podcaster that just like solo talks to people for an hour. Like, well, I know Mark Maron interviews people, but he kind of just goes off for a minute sometimes and I honestly don't know how they do it. Um, so salute to anyone who is good at doing that. Um, I hope everyone listening is having a decent enough time out there. It's very cold um, physically and mentally. <laughs> I'm fully rambling now, but I'm dedicated to not having to edit this before I post it. And here comes Ron. Ron is back. <laughs> don't don't worry, Ron. I, I did my plugs and kind of rambled for a minute while you were gone because I don't want to edit this. And, and now you're back. I, I had to go, man. I've had too many bevs. Uh, no, I'm I'm in the same boat. I was drinking coffee, water, and then I had my first beer. And I'm like, Ooh, first go. beer time. First beer. Yes, Cheers. sir. Yes, sir. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers, man. I got I got my Arizona tea here. Arizona tea, yeah, 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 my guy. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah, we're okay. We're wrapping up music industry lamenting right there. <laughs> music uh, industry lamenting, yes. Oh, by the way, I wanted to just personally ask you: How was? Did you did you enjoy your BBC World News appearance? 
Oh gosh. How was that? <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. I really did. I was, I was so, oh my God. I was so stressed out. I don't mind. I like, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty comfortable doing like interviews and that kind mm. of thing. Like I, I, I don't stress about it too much, Yeah. but that was crazy, man. Like it was just like, you know, Twitter, the magic of Twitter. I was just like, I like did a tweet thing about um, Facebook. I like, I posted a thread and it didn't, it didn't do like big numbers, but some like BBC producer. Hey, you're verified. That's what matters. Yeah, exactly. Can you you put in a word for me, Ron? Can you talk to the the Twitter people for me? I'm sure they uh, will reply to you. yeah yeah exactly they're like i don't know I'm, don't I'm, know i can do aaron a favor sometimes but uh, maybe maybe I don't, know, I don't know how to do it i don't know i don't know any twitter people i'll tell you that i don't know any twitter no. people but um no i'm 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 grateful for for all the words you've put in for me thus far despite uh me being a complete brat when you met me and oh. kind, of, kind of still no you're my guy you're my guy no no problem but yeah the bbc thing was stressful man it was like it was um you know, all of a sudden within a couple of hours, you go from having like a really normal low key day to like, I'm going to be on the television and 300 million people around the world who all turn into BBC World News because it's broadcast like literally in every like nook and cranny on earth are going to like see this, me, yeah. like talking about Facebook. Woo, that was something, man. No, they they got- hit you like day of? Yeah. Oh yeah. I yeah. mean, this is like, mm-hmm. dude, I, I was like, I was on, it was live at 6 p.m like our time mm. i got the email at like four Ooh. i got the email at four it was like hey do you want to do this and i was like yeah okay let's do it and so then i'm like and i was and i'm wearing you know i'm wearing like a hoodie i'm like not and i'm like all caffeined out like cracked out from just the whole day of work and so then i, I just like all right well i so i went and cleaned myself up and like ate a food and like tried to settle myself down and then went and then went and did it and it was like high high stress and then like as soon as you start talking it's just like oh yeah okay i'm just gonna talk and then it's like you know 60 seconds and then it's over and i'm like oh that was good (laughs) to the system nothing like being on international television to crazy crazy adrenaline man i don't know how i don't know what to compare it to this is super super like stressful happy for you mazel uh, thank you man it was fun it was fun i wish i wish i could do more i don't know i like that stuff i don't mind being uh, you know look in the anti-monopoly world there are lots of ways to go about 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 doing about doing this work right uh, you know any kind of any kind of political messaging lots of ways to go about it yeah. you can like write about it you can do scholarship about it you can do internal internal like you know meetings about it and do like lobbying like whatever you want to do there are lots of ways to go about trying to trying to make change um but like the way that i'm very comfortable with is like being a good being a good spokesperson mm-hmm. for the movement and for like what we're trying to do and this idea of like breaking corporate power and deconcentrating the economy yeah. and i like i like i like love this stuff and i like want to do i want to do more of it i'm I, I hope it's it's all moving along well right now. Uh, it I sounds think, like I you have so. plenty of projects so, to be excited about. I think so, man. I think so. Just trying to plug away, you know. Well, 
I did all of my plugs already. Um, I guess I'm ready to wind down and I'm going to ask you where people can follow you and find your work and everything. Lovely. Yes. Um, you can follow me uh, on Twitter primarily at Ron M. Knox. Very regular, regular Twitter handle. Nothing interesting. Um, and I got my bio there. Oh. What's up? Hey, can you still hear me? Yeah. I can't hear you. Oh, no. Yo, can you hear me? Yeah. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad this is happening at, at the end here. That's really good. Um, I'm going to keep talking and see if Ron can hear me. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll text him and see uh, if, we, if I Lord can. Lord have mercy. Okay. okay. Ron, do finish your plug and then I'll end it. <laughs> Good Lord. All right. There we go. I got it fixed. Oh, you're, you're back. I'm back. That's great. I was just telling you to finish any of your plugs and then i'll i'll sign off oh okay no that was it i'm sorry it. i know right no. at the end i had a tick i'm like fidget i'm sitting out here's what i'm fucking doing i'm sitting here fidgeting yeah because i'm like i'm like just fucking sitting here yeah. and i open up my little fucking bluetooth headphone mm. like opening and closing it like a like a like a tick and um, do you need to borrow one of my fidget spinners I probably do. I need like more fidgety things in my, in my, in my, like in my stress work. ball or something. I got nothing. Yeah. So I like, I open and close that. And then all of a sudden my, my Bluetooth headphones kick on and then I'm, oh. and then I'm, then I'm lost, lost at sea swimming awesome. out. Anyway. <laughs> Woo. Ron M. Knox at Ron M. Knox at Twitter. That's it. You can find my bio there. You can find my email. If you want to shoot me an email, if you want to have, if you have a good anti-monopoly story to tell by all means, um that's it like you find my bylines at the washington post at slate at the american prospect at the nation at npr and uh yep yeah, and i got a got a story coming out in wired magazine it'll be online i think it'll be in print too um in uh early march about monopoly power and corporate concentration in the music industry and it's gonna be a good one i hope so check it out so, I, yeah i can't wait to read it uh, yeah, thanks for for being on the pod. Is I think uh, I think it was overdue, and I think it was a good one. Thank you, man. I appreciate this. It was really good to hang out. Um, nice to see your face, and yeah. nice to chit chat. I love it. Anytime. Love it. I'm gonna stop the recording now. <laughs>